getting more people better access to the highest quality produce is what we're really going after. Mm-hmm. And so what mm-hmm. we're really focused on now is honing in on the perfect, you know, well, we'll always be in the quest of the perfect Bowery farm, but honing in on the Bowery farm that really can can start to scale with us. And so this is actually news a couple of weeks ago. We recently closed our series C round of financing to actually enable the growth to enable to, to start to, to grow that that footprint, to grow the network, to get to more places. And so it's a really exciting time at Bowery that we have the that we're enabled to be able to go after exactly what you're you're talking about. And part of that is through the different profiles of stores and customers and price points, you know, that we focused on. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. When you think of a commercial farm, what usually comes to mind? For me, it's large, expansive acres of land, tractors, barns, that classic farmer with the pitchfork, and being in rural America. And for good reason, that's what most farms look like. However, there's a big time innovation happening in this space, and it's been percolating for about two decades, but has really taken off in the last couple of years. And it's called vertical farming. And it may very well forever change how many of us get our produce and the environmental impact that food has. Today, we sit down with the chief science officer of Bowery Farming. Bowery is leading this industry and has exploded in growth, recently closing a fundraising round of $300 million and is now providing produce in over 850 grocery retailers. Vertical farming is also known as indoor controlled farming. Not in a greenhouse kind of way, but in a much more technologically advanced, controlled environment. Walking into a Bowery farm is quite the experience, as you'd see pillars of green vegetables stacked to the roof, all being nourished via LED lights to replicate the sun's rays, robotics assisting the human Bowery team, sensors picking up minute and 24-7 data signals of the health of plants, an hydroponic water system that is constantly recycling and reusing water in a way that would be impossible for outdoor farms. You know, if Willy Wonka were to become a farmer, he'd probably be working in Bowery. Vertical farming is on the rise all over the country and the world, and for good reason. From an environmental standpoint, vertical farming uses a fraction of the water in the land outdoor farming uses. Vertical farms are better suited for dense urban areas that struggle with getting access to fresh produce, without needing long transportation and with more and more people moving into cities and out of the suburbs and rural areas on a global level, this is critical. Billions of people globally and tens of millions of people here in the U.S. deal with a food crisis in terms of regular access to healthy, nutritious food. Bowery could help fight that. Vertical farming also has no need for pesticides because there simply are no pests. So there's some big time advantages here. Now, Not everything can be vertically farmed, at least not today, and we'll learn why in talking to Henry. Today, the industry is more focused on leafy greens and herbs, and it will take time to expand other crops that require, say, insect pollinators or more space and particular conditions. As we'll learn, some crops may never make it fully indoors, and that's okay too. Yeah, so at Bowery, what vertical farming means to us is that we are 
solving some really big challenges facing the global population by building a network of warehouse scale indoor farms where we grow vertically. And so what a vertical farm to us is in a warehouse that we can go into, use the full three-dimensional space and grow what we call protected produce. And so that means right now, leafy greens and herbs that we grow hydroponically 365 days a year using LED light, zero pesticides. And that gives us the ability to go from the point of harvest to store shelves within days because growing in those warehouses in that vertical fashion lets us be closer to the consumer, closer to the retailers. To give you a sense of how big these warehouses are, they can range from 50,000 to 70,000 square feet. That's roughly the size of a professional football stadium. Across all of its farms today, Bowery can produce 5.5 billion tons of produce every day. We grow in stacks. So we're about a uh, hundred times more productive than traditional farming, the footprint of land used in traditional farming. We can also grow much quicker than the field, over two times as fast as growing in the field, because we can give the plants exactly what they need when they need it, whether it's, you know, 18 hours of sunlight, 365 days a year, 20 hours of, of I said sunlight, I slipped a little bit, LED light. Mm -hmm. You know, we can we can give the plants what they need. And so there's a lot of flexibility that comes with that. And that's that's really what we focus on at, at Bowery. Now, I, I jumped ahead a bit on our agenda to ask about pollination. Many of the crops Bowery focuses on today, the leafy greens and the herbs, don't need help from insect pollinators. Many others do, of course. So I ask Henry how they look at this long term. First and foremost, since the beginning of Bowery, which is about close to six years at this point, We've actually focused on growing crops that don't need pollination. Mm -hmm. So leafy greens, things like kale, arugula, you know, lettuces, herbs, so like basil, parsley, cilantro, spring mix, you know, so all, all the leafy greens, none of that needs pollination. Yep. And so it's just inherently simpler to grow indoors. Where we're going though is beyond that. And so we talk a lot about beyond what's beyond leafy greens at Bowery. And so for the past for the past year and change with the introduction of what we call FarmX, our latest R&D facility at Bowery, where we've been growing things like strawberries and tomatoes and cucumbers. And so those types of crops need pollination and really just like at the core of how we, how we operate R&D at Bowery, we don't limit ourselves into one direction. And so we use some pollinators, we use some bees. We also look at different, you know, other techniques to, to pollinate. And so we're in the process now of, of scaling production from that, that R&D scale to sort of huge, massive warehouse scale. And so that's, we're in the process of solving you know, that, that challenge right now. Just setting up Bowery and vertical farming a little more for, for folks and understand why this is so important, why this innovation is, is, is a major breakthrough. Let's set the stage a little bit on our global food supply and the kind of supply issue we have with traditional methods of farming and how Bowery and other vertical farming overall kind of addresses those those challenges we're kind of facing with 8 billion people, the land usage, the water usage, food deserts, right, are a big problem in this country and all over the world. You know, what are some of those kind of global food issues that vertical farming particularly is good at addressing? 
Yeah. So you sort of touched on a couple, right? Over 70% of the the freshwater supply in the world goes towards agriculture. I think it's 6 billion pounds of pesticides are, are used every year around the world. In the, I believe in like the U.S. alone, we've we've used up 30% of our arable farmland, you know, which becomes a growing popular, uh, a growing problem as the population increases. I think even like the number is already something like three times, like the amount of water is sort of growing, sort of almost tripling every 50 years with the population. So there's an increasing problem that we have to, to, to address on that front. I think there's another category of problem as the population increases as we move towards urban areas, the fresh fruit, fresh food supply chain becomes even more and more strained over time. And so we, we see waste happening all along that, that supply chain. And that was actually magnified during the pandemic, right? You have food wasted on the farms, you have food, you know, wasted, you know, during transport across the country, you have food wasted on the shelves of the supermarkets and people's homes. And so at Bowery, you know, we address that in all of those issues in several key ways. First is in our farms, we use fully recirculating hydroponic systems. And that allows us to reduce constantly the amount of water to do more with less. You know, we do things like reclaim the water coming from the collected from our HVAC systems from dehumidification and reuse that in our farms. You know, I mentioned this already, but placing our farms near urban areas, reducing the, the transport time lets us get not just more product onto sh- shelves at a higher quality, but also more nutritious product, right? Because as leafy greens in particular, but all produce travels, like you lose some of the nutrient profile. And, uh, you know, on, on the supply chain side, to, to go along with all that, we've introduced this idea of what we call protected produce. And so part of that is no pesticides. Part of that is also a traceability that we have in our product from seed to store. We know everything that's happened to every plant that grows in a Bowery facility until it gets on, you know, until it gets to the retailer. And, you know, that becomes more important where you have E. coli outbreaks and people that are more concerned about where their produce has been, it becomes really hard when you have a distributor involved and you're not sure where a product comes from. And there's lots of different solutions to to problems like that. But ours leverages technology at its core at Bowery to be able to to track every every plant in a form. Anytime you bring a new innovation to market, that needs to come with detailed thought and experimentation around how to message and introduce it. Bowery refers to their products today as protected produce. What they mean by this is that when you buy a Bowery product, you know exactly which farm it came from, when it was harvested, and what went into it. Not only is it protected by offering such transparency over its life cycle, but also in that they use zero pesticides or other chemical treatments. Talking about specifically the food desert situation in the United States, and I'm curious like your strategy on tackling that. And and for listeners, it's important to understand that not all urban area, like urban uh, metropolis areas are food deserts, right? They're not one-on-one, but the food deserts are essentially places that truly in a, you know, meaning uh, a reasonable driving area just don't have access to fresh produce um, really at all. And there are plenty of these around the country. They particularly affect marginalized people, 
communities of color, as historically has been the issue here in this country. Native Americans live, have this a big issue with food deserts and a lot of their tribal lands. Now, where Bowery is today, right, you know, started in Jersey, right, in the New York kind of tri-state area, makes a lot of sense, tons of people. And there is, you know, a need for localized fresh produce. And there's a huge benefit, even if those people had alternatives to say that are transported in, just having not have that transportation, which also has an environmental impact and footprint to it. But having local things right there and handy is super valuable. Where do you see, and, and Bowery today, as as usually most products are when they're new and they're innovative, is priced slightly higher than alternative produce. How do you see Bowery tackling the food desert situation, which also has a kind of cost issue to affordability? And kind of where does that play into your strategy? And where, you know, how are you thinking about, how are you thinking about tackling that issue? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot in there, and it's something we've thought about since since Bowery was founded. You know, today we're in more than 850 major grocery retailers. You know, that ranges from from like an Alberts and Safeway or Acme to Whole Foods to Walmart. You know, who who store shelves we're on, and so right now, you know, what we what we're doing is is building our farms and, and building a company to hit the unit economics, to, to be on shelf at or below, you know, any other product on, on the shelf today. And, you know, long-term getting more people, better access to the highest quality produce is what we're really going after. Mm -hmm. And so what mm -hmm. we're really focused on now is honing in on the perfect, you know, well, we'll always be in the quest of the perfect Bowery farm but honing in on the Bowery farm that really can, can start to scale with us. And so this is actually news a couple of weeks ago. We recently closed our series C round of financing to actually enable the growth to enable, to, to start to, to grow that, that footprint, to grow the network, to get to more places. And so it's a really exciting time at Bowery that we have the, that we're enabled to be able to go after exactly what you're, you're talking about. And part of that is through the different profiles of stores and customers and price points, you know, that we've focused on. There's a lot of benefits of vertical farming. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of them already. There's less land us usage. There's less water usage, the lack of pesticides, the, you know, the, the local access that vertical farms can provide to especially dense urban areas. There's the increase in yield and kind of control, uh, higher quality. If you had to rank like all, like maybe the top two in your mind, knowing that there are a multitude of benefits here, but what stands out to you as like these one or two things are the things that, you know, are really kind of cut above the rest in terms of the impact this is going to have on how we live. Yeah, I, I think... I can definitely hold on on one or two two things, but it, it all ends up bubbling back together. Mm -hmm. This notion of doing more with less is just so powerful. And so one of the things that I really focused on when I joined Bowery was this technology that we call the Bowery Operating System. And I described the Bowery Operating System as software, hardware, and AI that we use to operate and learn from our farms. Okay, a little explainer here on what Henry means by an operating system for those not familiar with that terminology. You probably know your personal computer uses an operating system. Most likely it's Windows or Mac OS. It's the underlying infrastructure that powers all the different applications that run on your computer. 
The Bowery operating system is one that is designed for precision indoor farming instead of personal computing. And so at a Bowery farm, you know, we, we do things like we built our own control and sensing system so that we have the flexibility to turn lights on and off and have, a, have a, what we call a growing position, the lights in a growing position tied to whatever's underneath it. So if it's butterhead, the lights should be at 98% light intensity. And if it's arugula, the lights should be, you know, 85% uh, light intensity. And so there's this, per, you can think of it as like a personalization within our farm, crop to crop. Now, what I get really excited about in terms of, of opportunity with technology like this, with the Bowery operating system, is that we can treat each of our crops that we grow in our production farms as a learning opportunity. And so in our larger Bowery farms, in our latest one in, in Baltimore, Maryland, we have upwards of 100,000 crop cycles a year that we are collecting temperature, humidity, CO2 data, nutrient data, light photo period, light spectra, light intensity. Probably, you know, I've listed almost 10, 10 variables that we control. There's probably up, up to two dozen. And so if you think about each crop as a learning opportunity, we have the, the potential now to not just control things, but also observe the impact. And so what we're constantly doing is honing in on the best recipe to grow butterhead, kale, arugula, parsley in a, in a Bowery farm. And so what we're doing um, in this do more with less drive is constantly looking to, to get more yield, to get more productivity out of the same footprint that we have Right, and going back to, to sort of the last topic we were on, we can do more in that same that same footprint, and eventually bring prices down. Right, and so mm. we're getting more more Bowery lettuce to to more people at uh, more affordable prices. And so to me, that's really exciting. Right, how we can leverage technology to to constantly do better. You know, I, I mentioned we have temperature humidity. We also have cameras everywhere in a Bowery farm. We have, so, you know, 100% crop coverage of what's growing and we're looking at growth rates, right? And we're able to understand how the inputs affect the outputs, which are mm. growth rates, yield, quality. And so to me, that's the most exciting, you know, part that we're focused on in that do more with less uh, quest. Got it. The, speaking of those technologies, the, so vertical farming from what I understood is kind of been around as a concept for around 20 years. It was like late yep. 90s, I believe, yep. when a professor put out a piece that was sort of the predecessor of the, where the industry is today. And for a long time, up until the last few years, it's been very cost prohibitive to kind of make work, make the economics work. And it seems like there's been a couple particularly efficiencies on the technology side that stand out, particularly the lower lowering cost of LEDs as well as the increase yep. in technology and robotics and automation. Are the, is that fair to say those two kind of, you know, macro technology changes, the increased efficiency and lowering cost of LEDs and the increase in robotics and automation have like allowed vertical farming to get break through that cost prohibitive, you know, place it was, you know, for the first 10 to 15 years being pursued or are there other technologies and breakthroughs or is it just a matter of like, there's enough capital going into it now to get companies over that initial hump that they weren't betting on early on, or is it a combination of all these things? 
I think really it's a combination of all of those things. I think certainly access to capital gets you over an initial hump. You mentioned two in particular, right? The the decrease in cost and increase in efficiency of LEDs, right? That's certainly one that speaks to the capex and opex of of that part of reform. Certainly, robotics and automation um, is key, and we're at a time now where you know we can have machinery, robotics, and, and, and automated equipment that can aid our farmers in, in doing the job that has to be done every day. I would say I'll go back to the Bowery operating system as a third, as a third pillar there, because how you manage a farm, mm-hmm. a vertical farm at scale, can be quite complicated. How how you keep track of where everything is, when all the work has to be done, really with with the advances in software and hardware and AI, we're able to take a lot of the decision making out of the daily operation of a farm and do what I what I call is is make the unscalable scalable, right? And so how do you nurture every plant in a farm where there's millions in the same way that you could in your backyard, right? And how do you get the, the then the best product as a result of that? And so I think that third pillar is really important. Got it. Are there any other, beyond the LEDs and the robotics and kind of machine learning world, are any other major technologies that are driving vertical farming or things that are around the corner that you're excited about? Yeah, I think wherever, you know, there's there's two areas in particular. One, I'll go back to this this idea of decision-making, right? Like, how do you know what, like, what's the perfect day to, to harvest, you know, a, a head of butterhead, given everything else that's going on? And the demand coming from your 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 customers, right? Like, how do you marry all those things? I think that's that's big. I think there's a bunch of supporting technologies which have improved over the past decade or so that will continue to make vertical farming just like easier. And an example of that could be like water management. Mm-hmm. Seeing a lot of companies pop up around the water management, sanitation, fertigation. Fertigation is how you mix nutrients. We deliver all of the, the nutrients that a plant needs in the water, right? Because there's no soil mm-hmm. in a hydroponic environment like our ours. And so just like how you measure what nutrients are in the water or how how you inject those nutrients, there's a lot of enabling technologies that are are improving over time. We'll just make make our daily operations better and easier. Got it. And I imagine as you want to expand the variety of crops we talked about up, up front that can be grown in a facility, a Bowery facility, there's also going to be more innovation to make that happen, such as crops like that require a lot of pollination support, right? Things Definitely. Like What's needed for strawberries or raspberries, blackberries, you know, I didn't, I didn't mention, you know, things like uh, radishes and turnips, you know, mm-hmm. that we've grown at Bowery, which, you know, you, you take a radish grown from one of our farms and you, you cut it up and you notice a difference and then you take a taste and you sort of like have this experience, like a wow experience. And so in those, di- those directions around those types of crops, there's a, there's, there's a, a ton more to, to some, sort of be unearthed. Pollination that we talked about is, is certainly one of them. One of the critiques vertical farming has faced is that it uses a lot of electricity to power those LED lights, that hydroponic system and those robotics. And yeah, there is no doubt that indoor farming uses a lot more electricity than outdoor farming. However, there are ways to tackle this issue, both short and long term, starting with, as Henry explains, making conscious choices of where 
you actually get your electricity. We can choose where we get electricity. We, you, and so you, that's you can to a that's, certain that's, point, right? I mean, are, are you at a yes. place where the the entirety, or are you going to get to a place where the entirety of the electrical output, electrical input, sorry, needed for a Bowery farm, will be your choice, or will you, you know, always need to be plugged into the grid to some degree? So you can still be plugged into the grid and have a have a say in where your electricity comes from, and so that's one angle that that we take. We also you know, have cogeneration facilities on site where mm. we use a combination of natural gas and solar to supplement what we get from the grid. You know, and, and summers it's getting hotter and there's more, there's more of a load on the grid. We've actually been able to like switch over to that, you know, cogeneration at times that makes sense. And so I don't I don't think there'll be just one solution on this this energy topic for indoor vertical farming. I think there's there's multiple ways to, to do better over time. You also go to like back to the LEDs, right? Getting more efficiency over time is better. And then even with lighting, with the software side too, if we don't have plants under lights, the lights mm -hmm. are off, right? Mm -hmm. We look at optimizing not just the highest yielding crop, but the most profitable crop for us and the best quality crop. And so how we can control, better control the lights and the energy use within a farm is is another part of of the the sort of solution on the energy side. How do you measure today in terms of then where you're setting your goals for um, adding those efficiencies? So are you looking at it as a unit of energy per unit of food, and like making that like uh, is that like the North Star metric? Is it just the total energy need for a single Bowery farm? Is it energy need? Are you looking at each crop very differently and uniquely? Kind of how are you measuring it in terms of then setting your goals on like the, the efficiency targets you want to get to? Yeah, so we're not at a crop level, but we do look at our impact on like a pound output from a farm point of view. And what I'll tell you, it's, it's very early days, but we're setting ourselves up to be able to measure and impact all of the right things that as we really start to, to scale through the country and eventually beyond, we're, we're positioned to, to really be able to, to fine-tune on many different levels our impact. Next, we dove into discussing where indoor-grown produce sits compared to organic outdoor produce and how consumers can figure out how to make sense of all these different classifications when shopping in the store. So I had a, did a podcast episode a couple months ago with the head lead scientist at the organic center and the organic center does a lot of the research that feeds the organic trade association, which then governs okay. organic classifications and, 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 and diving in there, I didn't, there's a lot more, I guess, variability and loopholes in organic classification than I maybe had wanted to know as yeah. a consumer, but, but it's tricky, right? Because you know, different parts of the country have different environmental needs. And I, I get their, their challenges really, really hard. And I asked them about vertical farming. And I said, you know, do you consider, you know, vertical farming to be organic? And her response was, we're looking into it. As in kind of, she wasn't giving me a definitive yes or no yet. I think, you know, she kind of took this stance of it's a new innovation we are, we're kind of, you know, we're looking at it very carefully. I don't have an answer for you exactly where we're going to fall and on what timeline, or at least what my recommendation would be, because she's not the one setting the policies herself. She's just feeding some of the input to the policymakers. But just curious on your thoughts on the same question. There is, 
you know, for better or worse, you know, there, there's a consumer understanding of the word organic. It's usually wrong, <laughs> frankly, but at least it's out there of most people will tell you organic in their mind is better for the environment, non-organic. They probably can't tell you exactly why. You actually get different answers. You actually get different answers. I think like if you get five people, you'll get four different answers of what organic means. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And you might, you might even get, you know, more, multiple people might have different answers. So you might even get seven different answers if you ask five different people. So yeah, that, and that was, that was very clear to me. It's a challenge, right? In the organic side, because organic food is priced higher and most people don't know why. And they're like, Hey, am I, is this as marketing, right? Or is this really having an impact Am I really by buying this contributing a ton to the world? I don't know. And therefore, I see a lot of people opting not to buy organic because if they don't know conclusively that this is better for the environment, they're not going to spend that more money, especially if you know they're working class, lower middle class, middle class family where every penny counts. You know, for people that are in, you know, kind of upper, upper middle class to the sort of wealthy class, it doesn't really matter. Penny, like you know, a dollar is more on organic doesn't make a difference to them. And I'd hope they would just do it. But for people that those decisions matter, it, it makes a big deal to understand what that means. So how do you think about that world where we're in a period where the term organic is not clear to people? GMOs are confusing too. Uh, people think non-GMOs, like GMOs are just always bad. GMOs are not always bad. Some GMOs are bad. Some GMOs are not, not, not bad. And now we're entering this world of vertical farming, right? Where you know, Bowery is also a consumer label that's going through retailers. And you probably want people to have an understanding of what a Bowery, you know, a produce from Bowery means versus not Bowery. So this becomes a bit of a matrix for consumers when they're at the grocery and they see, oh, Bowery, vertical farming, organic, non-organic. What am I buying? Like, how do I, how do I navigate this? Right. So under, if you go down a level, this is this whole area that you just sort of dove into, organic, non-organic, GMO, non-GMO is a mess, right? I don't, I don't want to go too much into it, but the USDA has actually said that hydroponic agriculture can be labeled organic. And I, I believe where that's all at, that was, it was protested. I think there was, there was some lawsuits to, to go back and look at that. And they came back and said, no, it, hydroponic can be labeled organic. And now there's more lawsuits uh, uh, yet again. So there's a lot going on right now. And, and our produce is, is non-GMO. But the, the, the secret is, I don't think there's any GMO lettuce that exists. So everyone can say that. At Bowery, when you're buying a package of Bowery greens, we're really honing in on defining why it's important to buy product from a vertical farm. And so the, the term that we've honed in on, which I've, I used earlier, is this, this idea of protected produce. It's locable, local, it's traceable, it's more sustainable. The fact that we don't use pesticides, we have a no need to wash claim because we really grow in a clean room environment. It's just... And the fact that we're near, again, we're near consumers. And so the time to get on shelf is within days of harvest, not weeks or more of harvest, really is the is the, the part for the consumer to hone in on as being better. 
right? Not just a not just a label. And it's a really hard story story to tell on a clamshell, but one one that we we do try to. I think when we first got into Whole Foods three or four years ago, we we wanted to demo the product, and the store manager was like, "Demo the product? No one demos lettuce." But we we did it, and they were shocked that we didn't want to use uh, salad dressing. We had no dressing. We were just demoing in store like butterhead lettuce and our arugula and our kale. And people were, were blown away by the, the taste. I said before, there's this, this wow factor. It really does taste different. Yeah. And part of that goes back to the, the, the traceability, right? The, the no need to wash, the harvested within days. You know, when you go to a farm, you, you develop a relationship with, with what you see there. And if you go to a farm and you taste some produce, you have a real appreciation. I don't know if you've ever, if you ever had that experience, but, but you have like a little bit of a wow moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really what we're going for in our product. And, and right now it's not, it's not organic, but we like to think it's, it's actually trending towards better than organic because we can actually say what, what, what it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, do you think about it in the sense that it ultimately doesn't really matter if it ever get classified as organic as organic or not, because you're sort of trying to own your own messaging yeah. uh, around what this means and what this is. Yeah. And so if anything, would it be almost confusing in your mind if it got organic classification and now there's like organic hydroponic, organic vertical, organic non-vertical traditional. And like, is that become a mess? Is it, is it cleaner in a way that we keep organic as a classification for a better better form of traditional farming in that, which it is absolutely versus, yeah. you know, vertical farming being its own category, or do you, do you think these worlds need to kind of come together? I think it's really confusing because you're honing in on vertical farming, but the difference between like from a consumer point of view that, that the plants are stacked vertically. doesn't matter. Hydro- yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter the vertical. What farming, you're saying but, is it gets confusing. But right? hydroponic is not a word that's going to be easy to educate consumers on. Right. You exactly. I mean? so. And so I think I think there is an indoor designation. And I know I know there's some folks in the industry that are working on on this like indoor designation and being clear what it means. And I think the the hope is that there's some labeling, you know, labeling standardization within, you know, what can be put on a label to provide some greater consumer awareness across, you know, not just Bowery, but across the industry. Yeah. I think it, it is really important because there is a real difference. You don't have animals crawling all over, you know, your lettuce it may seem like a silly example, right? But but it's 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 a part of a part of the puzzle. Yeah. And so that consumer education is is something that we've been working on since the beginning and continue to push on because it's so important. So if vertical farming lives up to its hype and delivers on all its potential, how big will it ultimately get? What will farming and produce look like in 10, 20 years from now? It's an interesting question. Nobody can predict the future, but Henry sees a world long-term where outdoor and indoor farming will work together, play to their respective strengths, and collaborate, if you will, on feeding 8 billion-plus people in a sustainable, environmentally friendly way. If we fast-forward 20 years... What do you think our produce supply looks like? Do you see a world where there's, like in your mind, is it advantageous eventually for all farming to convert to vertical 
or if not, what percentage do you see certain crops always being stronger traditionally farm versus indoor hydroponic vertical farmed? Or do you see like how, what, if vertical farming and, and this methodology and indoor farming hits on all of its potential, what do you think are, let's just talk about U.S. because each country can be very different in this regard. Sure. In the U.S., what do you think our produce supply looks like in 20 years of indoor farmed versus traditionally farmed? I think, first of all, I think I'll say traditional farming, outdoor farming. Outdoor farming, not, yeah. It's not going to go, it's not going to go away. I think we're, we in the indoor farming world are a part of the solution to, to the problems that, that are facing us, particularly in this country. You know, we have ambition to be all over the country. And when I say all over the country, that means being able to be in stores within, you know, day of harvest from all of our, you know, all over the country. I don't know if I can give you a percentage, you know, that we would, that we would overtake. Just a rough ratio. Think, yeah, I think, I think there's like, I think we can get to like 30, 30%, 40%, mm. maybe even of the, in, in particular, the leafy greens. I think there's, that's where the big, the first opportunities will be to get, yeah. to get there. I think that's reasonable. Yeah. The, the two crops that stand out to me that sort of are kind of the biggest culprits traditionally of monocropping and thus massive loss of biodiversity, not regenerative are corn and wheat. We use a lot of them in this country. <clears throat> we eat a ton of wheat. We eat more wheat than we should. Someone's got to redesign the food pyramid at some point. It's absurd that we keep telling people to eat six to 12 servings of wheat a day. <laughs> but, and that, was, that food pyramid was designed post-World War II when we had, we had to get rid of a lot of wheat. <laughs> so, and then corn is, is used. Corn is like something that's always been a, a thorn in my side as an industry because it's been modified to the point where it has almost no tr- nutritional value for people. It's primarily used a lot for whether it's ethanol or livestock, you know, feeding, feeding livestock and farmed animals and lots of other kind of uses as well. But it's not a very nutrient-rich food anymore, the, most of the corn we buy. There is, yep. you know, heir, heirloom corn and things like that that are very, that are different, but that's not most of the corn that's bought. Right, that's um, fringe. Yeah. So for wheat and corn, are those two crops something that like are not really... Will vertical farming provide solutions to those? Are those examples of crops that are probably going to remain outdoors and, and we have to find other solutions to the land usage and the monocropping that they, they've kind of. I think, well, so I'll never say never, but it's more, there's a couple of things going on with wheat and corn. It can be grown indoors. It's easier grown outdoors and it's more cost effective. And I think as long as the cost of, Wheat and corn is where it is. There's a barrier to go indoors, mm-hmm. but it's certainly possible. And so I think, you know, there's some things that probably have to to change to swing in order to, to change that equation. I mm-hmm. think what you touched on is really interesting. You know, what's the value proposition that indoor farming can bring? And if it's being able to produce heirloom varieties or specialty, specialty you know, varieties, I think there's potential there. You know, when I think about what we sell I, in stores now, we have about 13, like maybe exactly 13 SKUs across lettuces and, and herbs. And, you know, as we think about what's beyond, like we could, we can grow, we can grow cucumbers, but as a consumer, why do you want to, like, what's the value proposition proposition for, 
for a, consu- a consumer to buy a vertic- you know, vertically farmed cucumber. We're working, on, we're working on that. Like strawberry is a lot easier, right? To get the highest quality, same quality strawberry, 365 days a year at the same price, like sign me up, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that's an easy one. To get the same wheat grown 365 days a year, it's a, it's a little harder, right? Mm-hmm. Value proposition. And that's where I think the specialty crops come in. And, and you know, people like, like Dan Barber is a great example, who's doing some really interesting things with seed development. There's a company, Row 7, which, which breeds, you know, some really interesting types of crops, not in the, the wheat area, but interesting, nonetheless, potatoes, yams, yeah. um, beets, things like that. And, uh, and so that gets really, that's what gets me excited, right? About what we can grow. Like I mentioned the, the Bowery radish, like radish, maybe not that interesting to most people, but you take a Bowery radish home, you cut it open. It looks beautiful. It's so watery. The sugar, like the sugar content there, it just, I keep going back. It's a wow. It's a wow experience. The last question for me is, so one of the things I've talked a lot about to it, Mike Selden, who's the founder of Finless Foods is, you know, they're, they're rounding the corner now in the cell-based meats where they're not in, on shelves yet. They're in Singapore. There was actually a cell-based chicken that went on the market in Singapore last year. But it's within the next couple of years, they're getting the cost efficiencies down. That's been the biggest issue, just cost parity. So one of the things he obviously is prepared for is kind of the onslaught of, you know, tra- traditional, for in case of finless foods, traditional fisheries, saying this is unnatural and, and kind of fear-mongering people around like you don't want to eat this right you don't know what it what like this is not how you know meat is you know kind of traditionally found it's like this was never a living animal like this was you know this is made in a lab they're gonna they're they're gonna do a big pr marketing campaign they have a lot of marketing dollars and a lot of weight to kind of smear it and something they're prepared against prepared for that that fight in addition to obviously the regulatory hurdles i'm wondering if as vertical farming picks up, and it really has in the last 12 months, and if that kind of pace continues, do you see a world where outdoor farmers could get on the little bit of defensive, let's say another farmer who's selling organic leafy greens, and trying to put a narrative out there that say, hey, this is not natural, and just using that, right? This is not natural, and kind of fear-mongering, because it's definitely going to happen in the cell-based meat world, and they know it. It's, it'll, it'll come. Do you think that'll that can happen? Is it already starting to happen at all? And if not, could it happen if kind of vertical produce continues to get traction? Do you see that kind of uh, dynamic taking place? You know, I think I, I feel like I felt that five years ago. Like when I told people, you know, what I did, what we do at Bowery, like, I feel like I got more of that. And, and I feel like that's actually I've been hearing less and less of that. Mm. And I'm not actually, it's, it's interesting you brought it up. I was thinking about it the other day. I'm not really sure why, why that is. Maybe it's actually like, you know, the plant-based alternative, alternative, you know, meats that are maybe taking some of, some of that, that, you know, sucking that, that air from us. I don't, I don't think so. And maybe, maybe it's a little naive to, to think, but, but I really don't, I don't think so because, well, could just be, is it fair to say too, it hasn't yet, if they potentially impacted the, the, the revenue and the top line, the order volume for outdoor leafy greens, but 
the growth in the last 12 months of vertical farming, Bowery in particular, has been tremendous, right? And there's other yeah. competitors out there like Plenty that are growing as well. So like, is is it fair to say maybe it just hasn't get that gotten to that tipping point yet where it's making a potential meaningful difference to outdoor farm leafy greens, but that could happen the next year or two, three years if the growth continues. And then there could be some of that dynamic. Is that, is that, because I think with the meat industry, the other thing that's different is the meat industry in general has kind of been on the defensive for a few years around just the negative environment impact of meat overall. So they are already on the defensive and now there's another technology coming that they're going to like stick with that on. But like an organic leafy green grower to the, has no, has had no reason to be defensive because they're not, they're doing right by the environment, right? They're like, they're, they're certainly, I'm not focusing on the organic side on the outdoor farming, they're doing the best they can, the best that like has been proven out. Vertical farming is a new innovation that does even better on some of these metrics. And maybe it's just not at a tipping point yet where it's really affecting them, but it could if the growth yeah. continues. Yeah, I think, look, it certainly, it certainly could. I think, you know, as more information comes out around the nutritional content and the the differences in the the actual like plants themselves, you know, the, the, the lettuce, the greens, I think, I think people will, will, will see. I think there's some educational part of this too, where we do have to explain, you know, sort of how we do things and why we do things. I think if we don't share that, the potential of what you're suggesting is higher. But I think back to the challenges we were talking about, about before around how to, how do we convey the story, right? Of, of why indoor grown produce is, is better for, for people and the environment. I think, I think that counters it. So yeah. I think, yeah, that's. And that's, that's one thing I, I, I felt beyond and impossible did really well is the storytelling and the marketing side of plant-based meats. And so yeah. you're all taking that on for the folks that are listening that are going to walk in some of those 850 stores where Bowery products are in, and they're going to see a Bowery product after listening to this, what do you want them to take away from of like, you know, there's a lot of information here. There are a lot of great benefits Bowery's putting out there in vertical farming, but it's too much for one person to just remember everything. So the next time they see Bowery leafy green or a Bowery herb on the shelf, what's the one thing you want them to think of in making that, 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 that choice decision? Yeah, think about how protected your food is, right? And this idea of protected produce, knowing, being able to know where your product comes from, seed to seed to store, knowing that there are no pesticides, not just clean pesticides on, on your produce, knowing that the product is harvested days, not weeks, all ties to that protected produce. And I think to me, that's the most important point for a consumer. When I'm walking through a produce aisle now, I'm thinking, where where did this come from? How long ago did it, did it you know, originate there? And, and how was it treated when it was there? Yeah. I, I haven't, I'm not, I don't think I'm in an area because I'm on the West Coast where Bowery's at yet because I think you're not out, out this on this no, coast. Um, so I haven't seen any Bowery products in stores, but do they have a harvest date on the packaging? Yep, we do. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's, there's an olive oil brand that, that I love out here that does the same thing. And it was like so nice and refreshing to be able to like walk in a store and hers, it's, it's sent to you. It's not really in retail, but yeah, either way to get a food product and have a harvest date on it and know exactly when this was, you know, taken from, uh, from the ground. And that's actually, you know, sitting in my seat as a technologist and as a scientist that we can tell the story of everything that happened 
right, to, to yeah. the uh, produce that you're you're about to eat is so powerful to me. And actually, what really excites me is the direction that we're heading. I actually want to I want to get your feedback. Sure. Right. I want to get everyone's feedback and have that tie into the optimization that's going on. Right. And you should be able to know, like, this head of lettuce had more more light than average. Mm. Right. And you should be able to tell me it was sweeter or more bitter that you liked it or you didn't like it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's part of this that, that really excites me. Yeah. And I think like the plant-based meat industry, you're going to have, you're going to have different types of buyers that are buying for different reasons, right? You're going to have folks like me that are going to buy it for environmental reasons. You're going to have folks that the taste, right. Is, is first and foremost, you're going to have folks that are just price conscious. You're going to have folks that really get sold on the water usage particularly. Yeah. And, and beyond meat, I think has done a similar job where they have different profiles and they have their, you know, their primary profile, I believe of like the person who's eating hamburgers regularly. Right. And then secondly, they want to go to the folks that have already made choices to eat less meat and introduce as like a treat. And so you're going to have the same, I imagine thing of like different types of seg segments of consumers are going to be buying Bowery products for different reasons. And you're just going to have to, you know, hone that messaging in, in a kind of personalized way. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's both, I think the, like the, the blessing and challenge, you know, as we build the Bowery, Bowery brand yeah. to be able to hit all of, all of those different types of messaging. Yeah. Well, awesome. I really appreciate the time and appreciate the work you're doing and the impact it's having. And I'm glad we, we got a chance to, to chat and uh, congrats on all the success. Congrats on the growth. And I'm sure it, it feels good to, you know, wake up every day and work on what you're working on. Definitely. Thanks for the time, James. Yeah, it's it's uh, really something to be able to to do something you're you're so passionate about. So I am thankful for it. <laughs>